All right, good evening, and we're going to jump in quick because we only got halfway through it last week, and there's probably more than half left to go. So continuing tonight, turning the tide of the war in Revelation chapter 12. But before we do, in chapter 11, in verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice the change in the formula. Not who is to come, for this is the beginning of his coming. You have taken your great power. And it begun to rain. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. No longer. Will a sovereign God be satisfied even in the goodness of His purpose to allow a usurper to run roughshod over that which belongs to Him? When we move to chapter 12, we see the largest parenthetical, the biggest parentheses in all of the prophecy of the Revelation. And it's with good cause What we will see here tonight, starting in verse 7, is the first strategic defeat, the first monumental shift in the war that has happened since the cross itself. Since the cross, what we have seen in the war of this present darkness versus the kingdom of God is a war of tactical attrition that ebbs and flows in both directions, sometimes Satan getting the perceived advantage, sometimes him taking the perceived loss. We can look to the first century church and the explosion of the Gospels that spread across the world, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and we can see the kingdom advancing. We can look then to the nationalization of the Roman church in the dark ages that would naturally, naturally follow. And the progression of the kingdom of darkness. We can look at the Reformation and see the progression of the kingdom. We can see it pushed back as it's institutionalized in governments across Europe. Certainly we can see the progression of the kingdom in Puritanism in the United States and in Great Britain in the 18th century. And certainly we can see the progression of the kingdom of this world today and all the things that are around us. But the reality is, is what you've seen is a war of tactical attrition. There has not been a paradigm-changing shift since the cross. And in Revelation chapter 12, there's going to be one. Here, the tide of the war turns. And before it does, we get a quick synopsis of the history of infamy. 
A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1260 days, or 42 months, or a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 introduces the largest parenthetical section in all of the revelation and its content is nothing less than the overview of the enmity of the war between good and evil that has existed since the fall of Satan himself. What you see here is the big picture of the seed of the woman will crush your head. We see the woman Israel bringing forth, as we saw this morning in Romans, that according to them is not only the promises and the patriarchs and the prophets, but according to them, through the flesh is the birth of Christ. We see Israel bringing forth the Christ child, Satan, the great red dragon of old, trying to devour him before he can do that which that the Lord had set and ordained for him to do. We see him victorious, being caught up to heaven, waiting for the day when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And then, then, in verse 7, the actual footstool begins. You know, if you want to look at the timeline of Revelation 12, and this is just, you know, everybody wants to put this on a chart somewhere. If you want to look at the timeline of Revelation 12, 1 through 6, it begins all the way in Eden with the enmity between the seed of the woman and the dragon and continues until the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. These six verses span a minimum of roughly 6,000 years if you date them to today's date. Therefore, for a proper understanding, we should not attempt to place the events of Revelation 12 and 14 into the tribulation narrative because it's much larger than that. If you take the tribulation narrative out of Daniel and Revelation and stick it all together, it basically covers seven years. If you take it just out of the Revelation, it focuses on the last three and a half. What we should do is identify how and where the tribulation narrative belongs in the midst of the record of enmity and war between good and evil that we see in Revelation chapter 12, verses 14, because it starts millennia before the events of the tribulation that we see here, those spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Smack in the middle of the war of enmity we see the first strategic shift since the cross in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels, the third of the stars that he took with his tail, fought back 
but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because his time is short. There is a war in heaven. And the war results in Satan being cast out and cast down to the earth. We see a very particular role for Michael the archangel. Up to this point, Michael has not been able to deal with Lucifer. He has been in over his head. Scripture would teach us that Satan is the highest order of created being. And when it comes to a head-to-head matchup, the odds were all in his favor. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jude, in verse 9, speaking about Satan and Michael arguing over the body of Moses. It says that when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. And so, right right on the surface, you've got a situation here where you've got two created beings, two angelic beings. You've got Satan, the, 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 the guardian cherub, fallen. You've got Michael, the archangel, unfallen. And yet, because of their order of creation, when it comes time to go head to head, Michael knows that he is fully outmatched. I think what is probably more interesting is the fact that it is implied that if Michael had rebuked him of his own accord, that that rebuke in and of itself would have been blasphemous in nature. Now that's a that's a, a loaded gun. There is an order here that God has ordained and that only, only God Himself can bring punitive judgment upon. And so, Michael, not offering a blasphemous judgment, not stepping outside of the ordained order, no matter how difficult and how evil it is, unwilling to step outside of the order that God has ordained, Michael will not dare to offer a judgment against him of his own accord, but instead says, the Lord thy God rebuke you. But in Revelation chapter 12, something changes. There is a turning of the tide. War arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back and he was defeated and there was no longer a place for him. This is not the first time that we hear of this conflict. 
We've said multiple times through this study that when you look at the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, that they are the same prophetic word. It is the same scroll that is being read in both of them. In the book of Daniel, you see a focus on the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then when the book is sealed, you get a real quick synopsis of kind of what's coming next, what you can expect next. At the beginning of the Revelation, when the Lamb who was slain is able to open the seals and the weeping in heaven stops, and we see all of this stuff unfold, you see a brief review of the first three and a half years with a focus on the last three and a half. And there at the end of Daniel in chapter 12 and verse 1, it speaks of this event when it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. The word in the Hebrew, literally, it's, it's amad. And it literally means to stand. He will arise, He will stand, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be saved. Michael will arise. He will take his stand. When he does, it will be with great effect. You know, you could you could reference a lot of places um, out of Scripture uh, for this concept of Ahmad and taking the stand. But seeing how this stand is taking against the highest order of created being, and what we're going to see is that stand comes from the power of God Himself. Turns out it is not just the saints that the Lord empowers to do things that are beyond them. He empowers Michael to do something that's beyond him. I think the place that we would probably reference the best would be Joshua chapter 5. In verse 13 through 14 where we see one of the great Christophanies where we see the pre-incarnate Christ presenting Himself before His people. And it says that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing. And Once again, here in the Hebrew, it's, it's Ahmad. And that's not the normal, that, that doesn't, that's not the word for standing up the way I'm standing here. It means to take your stand. To hold fast to a position. We saw a man taking his stand before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Because that's the way you take a stand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Man, I love this. It's just love it when Jesus doesn't answer the question. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Answers the one you should have asked instead of the one you did. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Oh. Guys, let me tell you something. God's for himself. The question is not, are you for us or are you against us? The question is, are we for oh. you? He said to him, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Here you see Christ, sword drawn, taking his stand, asking Joshua, How's it going to go? Here we see Michael taking his stand, a stand that is definitively not his own. He is merely the instrument 
for the victory is in the power of Christ and Christ alone. You know what? Me and Butch, we used to do the kitchen talk stuff. I remember asking him, I said, okay. I said, on the floor of heaven that is a solid emerald that looks like it's got a rainbow in it, what do you think happens when a guardian cherub and an archangel cross swords? But the reality is, is what is happening is that the God and Savior of all creation is empowering one of His faithful creatures to execute His will. And indeed, He does. Michael's stand is not his own. He is the instrument of Christ. Just like when we've been looking on Sunday mornings in Revelation in Romans chapter 10, man, faith comes through hearing. But hearing doesn't come through the word of the preacher. It comes from the word of Christ. And so the victory and the power is Christ alone. In verse 10, he says, Clearly, I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Not the authority of his archangel, but the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives even unto death, whether it be angel or whether it be saint. The victory comes through the power of Christ and through the power of Christ alone. The devil. Diabolos, the slanderer, the one who falsely accuses. If you want to go with the Hebrew, the Satan, the adversary, the one who deceives the whole world, has been thrown down. The result, at the moment, is a mixed bag. And we need to get our heads wrapped around that. The result is a mixed bag. And there is rejoicing in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven over the exercising of salvation, of power in the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. And finally, I mean, if you think about it, Scripture tells us that since, at least since the Garden of Gethsemane, that what Satan has done is stood before the throne 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, if you can even quantify it in that manner, that he has stood continually day and night accusing the saints before our God. Accusing them in such a way, if you were in the, the prayer study here a couple of small groups back, accusing them in such a way that it requires... The Son Himself making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father that it requires the Holy Spirit making intercession for us on this end when we don't know how to pray as we ought. Oh. And for the first time, you know, I don't know what it looks like. You know, you, you hear these guys say um, that uh, you know they prophesy by the headlines and things get rough, and especially if it happens in the Middle East, and people will say stuff like, "Well, you know, Gabriel's licking his lips." Let me tell you, well before Gabriel ever licks his lips to blow his horn, what Micah will do is grasp the hilt of a sword. And there will be rejoicing because 
finally the blasphemous accusation that has run its mouth constantly for now over 2,000 years against the very bride of Christ that he died to save is silent. And that is cause for rejoicing. It's a game changer. There is a spiritual reality here where in heaven before the throne, which basically is the arbiter of existence, the accusation ceases. And it ceases because in the perfect ordained timing of our God, Christ is heard enough. He empowers Michael. I don't know what it looks like. But at some point in time, Christ is going to look at him and give him the nod throw him out. And he will. And what Michael could not previously do, the Lord will supply him in order that he might. Now, that's a good thing spiritually. It is going to make things very difficult physically. But guys, I've got to tell you, if you can have one or the other, take the spiritual boon and the physical hardship. He is furious. He is furious because he knows that his time is short. Therefore, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. One of the things, one of the hallmarks that's stated about the nature of the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7, particularly in verse 25, is that he will seek to change the times and the law. These are the two things that he wants to modify. And we have, because of the scourge of dispensationalism that has risen its head in the last 170 years uh, here in the Western world, we have this idea that, that very misinformed, that the reason that Satan wants to change the times is because he's looking to advance his agenda. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture teaches us that he has this kind of nagging anxiety that in order to advance his agenda, what he needs is more time, not less. I mean, see, that's the catch-22 about standing before the throne and accusing the saints. You're constantly standing before the throne. You see him for what he is. And it's a constant testimony, no matter how insane you are, that you really are in over your head. He seeks to change the set times. And so, man, when he's thrown out, he comes down because he knows what this prophecy says. And he comes down in great fury. Because, man, he knows the clock is ticking. And that his time is short. When he's cast to earth, Israel flees. He knows his time is near. This is not prophecy in isolation. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 26, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 26, in verse 16, O Lord, in distress they sought you. 
Man, because what he's about to do, and we'll read it here in just a second, what he's going to do when he hits the ground is exactly the stuff we were talking about this morning. This is just the other side of the coin. Where we see the church being grafted into the promise of salvation that is to come to the Jew, and therefore the church must suffer in order to provoke the Jew to jealousy, to suffer well, to suffer faithfully, so that when the Messiah comes and the Jew sees them getting a reward that was promised to them, that they would mourn when they look on him who is pierced. This is what's going on on the other side of the equation. Man, when he comes down, what he's going to do, his first thought is not go for the Christians. Man, the fullness of the Gentiles is being brought in. There's a whole lot more of them than there are of the remnant of the Jews. And they are born again, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They will be equipped in the same way that Michael was equipped that just handed him his tail. He doesn't go for them. The first thing he's going to do is go for the Jews. Because if you can cut the vine off at the ground, you don't have to worry about the branches. They will be hard-pressed. And because they are not equipped with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God will provide for them in mercy until such a time He will shelter them, He will guard them until such a time that they are. Man, they're going to have to run. That's what Jesus told them. He said, man, when you see the abomination, when you see what was spoken of by Daniel, Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, run, flee, to the mountains. Don't go back and get your cloak. Don't go back and get your sword. Run. Isaiah 26. O Lord, in distress they sought You. They poured out a whispered prayer when Your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she was near to giving birth, so were we because of You, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we gave birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Okay. Just in case you weren't sure with the first three verses what the context of what we were talking about here is, now we are. What's coming here is the dead rising from the grave. Come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword, see Revelation 19, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so it comes. Heaven rejoicing, woe to you on earth for 
the dragon, the devil, the serpent of old has come down to you in great wrath because he knows what Isaiah 26 says and he knows his time is short. And there is a sword that comes forth from the mouth of his creator that splits bone and marrow. And it's coming for him. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. He goes after Israel. Because, hey man, if you just cut the vine off right at the ground, you don't have to worry about the branches. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The 1260 days of verse 6. 42 months. Three and a half years. The second half of the great tribulation, of the tribulation, what Christ spoke of is the great tribulation. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The first thing he's going to do is pursue Israel. In Daniel chapter 11, in verse 29 through 32, Daniel records it like this. At the time appointed, he, being the Antichrist, now indwelled by Satan, shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Much like the cross. Once it is clear that the outcome is inevitable and He can no longer restrain the purpose of the Lord's coming, Satan turns his fury on those beloved by God, those that he hates. And when he attempts to destroy them and the Lord supernaturally supplies for His people, when he can't get a hold of Israel, when he can't have the strategic blow that would lay the axe to the very root of the vine. He turns his attention to the next best thing. He turns his attention to the branches that have been grafted in. When the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. The outcome 
of the anger of Satan from being cast out of heaven and being unable to lay his hands on the anointed nation of Israel, he turns his wrath upon the very people that hold to the testimony of Christ. Having failed to obtain the child, having failed to destroy Christ or the woman Israel, Satan turns on the last of God's children, the saints and the church, the very believers that have been grafted in that we looked at this morning in Romans chapter 11, verse 17 through 18. The persecution of the saints and the church by the Antichrist is efficient. It says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into His hand. Guess for how long? The exact amount of time that Israel is being shielded before their rebirth for a time, times, and half a time. According to Revelation chapter 13, verse 7 through 10, we looked at it this morning. If, if you're to go to captivity, captivity you go. If you're to be slain by the sword, with the sword you must be slain. Not only is Satan's persecution of the saints efficient, it is brutal. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it is worldwide. And according to Romans chapter 11, verse 11 through 12 and 25 through 32, it is effectual to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that we all together might be saved. Amen. Sometimes good things are the hardest things. It's going to be tough. But it is ordained by our God and it will work. It's going to work. And all Israel is going to be saved in a moment when they look upon him. And in doing so, both Jew and Gentile having been consigned to disobedience will together in the wisdom and the glory of God together be saved. The children of Abraham left alive by blood. The children of Abraham by faith. The dead in Christ will rise. Those who are left in the twinkling of an eye, will be caught up with Him that we may be with the Lord forever. Here is the turning of the tide of the war. The first strategic shift since the cross. The one that will bring about the consummation of the age and the glory of Christ. Jim, you want to pray for us?